Welcome to the Sun-Dried Tomatoes podcast. I am your host and creator, Anthony Yotso. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find the audio-only version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please follow, download, and subscribe where applicable. For those listening to the audio version, I have a video version on the Sun-Dried Tomatoes YouTube channel. Please go subscribe there as well and check out other shows that will feature sports, brewing, and music, including my show, Random Reactions, which is also on IGTV, uh, some other videos on the NFL draft and European football or, or soccer, for those of you in America, and for my new show, Legends of the Diamond, where I talk about some of the greatest ball players of all time that weren't allowed to play in the MLB uh, when the MLB began in the early 1900s. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at eclectic underscore Yozo, that's E-C-L-E-C-T-I-C underscore I-O-Z-Z-O. I will have updates, teasers, and short videos to go with my YouTube content. Plus, you might be able to get to know me a little better as well. Today, I am joined by a good friend of mine, Josh Smith. Josh is currently the editor for Ground Support Worldwide, a position he began in 2016 and works mostly in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. He oversees production with a print magazine that comes out about 10 times a year, creates daily newsletters, and provides updates with the latest news on aviationpros.com. Ground Support Worldwide has over 17,000 subscribers in 150 countries. The mission statement says that the goal of the company is to deliver leading ideas regarding management, product, and service information for all segments of the ground support community, including ground support professionals at commercial passenger and cargo airlines, military stations, ground handling firms, fixed-based operators, or FBOs, and airports. Josh is a University of Wisconsin-Whitewater alumnus like myself. He was also a reporter editor out of college uh, in 2008, like myself. He started covering government and sports for the Waterloo Marshall Courier and later became an assistant sports editor for the Jefferson County Daily Union based in Fort Atkinson. We also started a short-lived blog called I Am Sporticus and did a short podcast stint before we were both able to get full-time jobs in our field, him at the Daily Union, and me as an assistant sports editor for the Unified Newspaper Group. I, of course, am currently a sports editor for APG News in the Twin Cities metro area in Minnesota. And Josh moved on from uh, the newspaper industry, so to speak, for his current position. You know, I will be talking with Josh today about his time covering sports at newspapers and his transition to his new job, as well as the challenge of working uh, for newspapers in a sports field. You know, when life goals come into play, like marriage, having kids, you know, uh, just dealing with that daily grind because the schedule is tough. And we will get into that. Plus, with uh, Josh being a big fan of baseball like myself, he, of course, a Chicago Cubs fan, and I am a Chicago White Sox fan. You know, we are the rare rival fans that respect each other's opinion and each other's allegiance, you know, which is kind of rare. I mean, let's be honest, some people get into fistfights over this. Josh, of course, is also a board member for the Fort Atkinson Generals, a home talent league baseball club in Wisconsin. And we could probably talk about baseball for hours if we actually had the time. So without further ado, I bring you the real Jay Smooth, Josh Smith. Uh, what's happening, my friend? Uh, how's life treating you these days? Uh, it's treating me well. And after an intro like that, even better. It's, uh, 
makes me feel like I've, I've gotten around to doing some things uh, over the last several years. Uh, <laughs> it's great. appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no problem. You know, I want to get into what you're doing now a, a little later as we, as we go through this. But before that, uh, I do want to bring up our beginnings, you know, as we kind of had a shared path, um, you know, especially with, uh, you know, how we progressed in our careers. We, you know, we didn't necessarily get that full-time sports editing job right away. We had other things to do. You know, I actually had a part-time one at first. And, and I know you remember I, our blog and podcast uh, that we tried to do talking about some March Madness debacles <laughs> and doing a, we did a podcast with the, <laughs> the the Cardinal battle from Middleton and some Prairie of Wisconsin knows about that, you know, and, and uh, obviously you worked for the Waterloo Marshall Courier and I was the part-time at the, you know, Wisconsin State Journal and as well as the state of Wisconsin. So we weren't actually totally in sports. So it was the goal was to add our, you know, add our resume uh, be more involved in the sports writing media world, you know, and I know we, we both feel that it helped us land our first time sports writing gigs. So, you know, let's talk about that process. I, I'm not sure people understand how difficult it is to break into the, to the reporter editor field. So, you know, I mean, for you, when we started to do that, you know, what, what was kind of going through your head as we were doing, obviously we we're having fun, but it was also to kind of build our career. So, so what were some of the things that, uh, you know, you were really hoping to accomplish like that. And, and how was that uh, challenge of uh, wanting to be the full-time guy and not there yet? Yeah. Um, you know, looking back at that time, I, I, I'm pretty, pretty proud of some of the work that we put together on that blog. And, you know, if, if I'm being honest, um, you know, is it the best work that either of us have put out to date? Um, no, I would certainly hope not. I'd like to think we both have progressed as, uh, as writers and editors, but, um, you know, just the, the work that went into kind of building our own schedule, um, mapping out the coverage that, uh, we were planning for a given, uh, season of sports and even just the scope of, uh, topics we were covering, you know, we were, we were writing about high school sports, uh, in a pretty large area, we were, you know, kind of blogging about, um, you know, the latest uh, happenings in college and professional sports. And, and even then not really limiting ourselves to just strictly baseball or, you know, just football. We, we wrote about anything that kind of caught our interest on a given day. So, um, you know, in the grand scheme, we might've bid off a little bit more than we could chew in terms of like really sustaining, um, you know, that little, that pace of writing we were doing at the time and, and just kind of that, those big picture goals that we, we, we were kind of hoping that that blog might um, produce, but I, I do think it produced some other big picture goals and just that we were able to kind of develop our own individual writing skills. I, I think, um, kind of having that peer to peer relationship that you and I had, you know, kind of being the same level professionally, but just having honest feedback with one another about the, uh, you know, the articles and blogs we were writing and just passing them back and forth. I think we both improved as writers uh, at a pretty quick rate. And I'd like to believe that, you know, the fact that we both landed, you know, real sports writing jobs, not just our, our passion project sports writing jobs. I want to say within a few months of, of starting that project, um, maybe four or five months, no more than six, really. 
Um, so that's that's the part that I'm really proud of is that we were able just to work together to help one another, you know, improve our our craft and and land those um, those types of sports jobs that we were looking to get into. And then uh, even after getting our official sports jobs, so to speak, um, still being in um, you know coverage areas that overlap from time to time and running into one another at sporting events where you were covering the opposing team that I was covering, you know, so, um, getting a chance to work together on that, uh, on the, on the blog was fantastic. And then being able to collaborate kind of out in the professional field, uh, right after that, uh, both of those uh, memories are pretty special when I look back at kind of how my career got started. Yeah. It's, it's definitely interesting when you talk about, uh, you know, how we might've bit off more than we can chew. Cause it it's a lot more work than people think. I mean, like doing what doing this now, you know, I have, I'm, I'm trying to do this monthly podcast and, and, and a couple of shows and stuff on YouTube and things like that. Uh, it's difficult because you have to work around, not just your regular job as it's not like, I'm, you know, funded to do this at this point, maybe in the future, which would be amazing. You know, if I get monetized later that again, that's cool. But you know, it's more of being able to do like, I just wanted to do this to kind of get out some of the skills that I have and things like that. But uh, it's difficult. You know, there, I have all these grandiose ideas and I have to always curtail them. And I always have to be like, it's okay for me to push this back and push this back. You want to be pretty consistent as, you know, people might forget about you or not tune in, but you know, at that time, you know, we're on our, in our twenties, like pretty much just out of college trying to do, uh, trying to do this stuff with our other jobs. And we had to travel to like meet each other a lot. We had to meet yeah. halfway and things like that. I'd had to come down to, you know, Waterloo for, for when you live there for a little bit. Um, and, and I think that like when we finally got our full-time jobs, when we were in the field, we realized it's going to be almost impossible to do our regular jobs and do that as well. You know, I, I, I you know, I think we tried to keep it going for a little bit. Like you said, like, I, I feel like we, uh, you know, I know I wrote a couple more things and, uh, and you wrote a couple more things. We did a couple interview things and, and then we did some things that were in addition to, to our regular job, maybe with the opposing team. So it didn't conflict and things like that, right. but we definitely did it for a little bit. We tried. And then we kind of both were like, yeah, you know, I was thinking about this and you were like, I was thinking about the same thing. And we were like, on the same page, like it, it accomplished what we needed to do. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and I think, it, I think a big thing of what it needed to do was help us just exercise that writing muscle. And, um, you know, it, maybe it was, a some hubris, uh, from being, you know, just a, a young hotshot out of school, but, you know, I feel like plenty of my professors, emphasize that to be a better writer you just gotta write you know every day right and right and right and you know and i i heard them but kind of felt like i was doing okay doing things my way and then we got involved in this blog and we really were writing every day a couple times a day you know just to try and keep populating the blog with you know new articles on a regular basis and and i think that ultimately did produce you know, stronger writing out of both of us. And you're right. It, it did what it needed to do and it got us in the door. And, and then from there, you know, we were exercise, exercising those uh, writing muscles just on a daily basis when we were going into work and, and getting paid for it, which was a, <laughs> a nice yeah. bonus. 
Oh yeah. At the time it's like living the dreams. Like we finally got that sports writing game. We're covering sports and getting paid for it. It's amazing. Yeah. And and, and, you know what you said, I mean, obviously that's uh, something uh, for anyone that actually still wants to get into, to, you know, sports writing. I know at this time, I'd probably tell people to make sure that you have other skills besides just writing because of the way the industry is moving. But, you know, it's the same thing, like trying different things like this, even if it's just, I watch this game on TV and you're writing something for yourself, practice writing. Like, I think that that's definitely huge. And and it's actually one thing I actually see from people that are like, I want to be an intern and write. And then, you know, I'll edit their story and they'll be like, Oh my God, you edited it like this much. And, you know, I'm trying to be positive, but I'm also trying to be like, you know, my managing editors are going to expect this kind of work. So I'm trying to help you by editing this and, you know, getting practice might help with some of those basics, you know, things like that for sure. You know, and one thing I got to say is that, uh, you know, obviously, like you said, it's really fun that we were able to go to different towns, cover things. We'd, we'd overlap, you know, we'd go cover a game, then grab a beer afterwards. You know, a lot of times we go cover a game, go back, you know, if I was in Fort Atkinson, we'd go back to your house. We'd both write our little updates online, go through anything like that. Then we'd like grab a beer somewhere and like, you know, kind of hang out and and, and talk about things. And that obviously was really fun, fun. And I'm sure like me, you met some of the other sports writers around, you know, like guys like Dennis Semrau, like Rob Hernandez when they were, you know, in town and they were always really nice. You can have conversations with them at games, talk about, they'd ask you questions about your players. You'd ask questions about the players they were covering. It was really fun. Um, you know, but at the same time, there was that grind, you know, especially playoff time. And I'm sure, you know, that oh too well, like myself, there were times when, you know, there, I mean, you got paid a little bit of overtime at the daily union, which was nice. I did not at uh, UNG. It was essentially you cover your stuff and then maybe later you can, you know, not work as much. And then it will count as, you know, that you worked, you know, <laughs> even though that's technically like illegal, I think, <laughs> you know, so it's like you put in like 60 hours, some of those weeks, like, especially like uh track season in the summer, you know, I think that around Memorial day, I would always call it hell week because our deadline was Tuesday night. So we'd have conference track. We'd have conference tennis actually on Monday. Then we'd have conference um, track on Tuesday. And then there'd be another conference track on like Wednesday, then golf Thursday and Friday in the morning. So, you know, that's a lot of time that you're out covering, taking pictures. And then the following week you had sections for track and regionals and all that. So it's definitely a grind. So I wanted to to get into to you, like when you had to, when we were in our twenties and you're single and things like that, obviously it's a little easier. You could kind of work around it. Most of your friends don't go out until at night anyway, you know, like to like later. So I never really saw it as it took away from like my free time, you know, I just kind of worked around it. But as the, the years go, it definitely starts to eat into your time, especially when you have certain life goals. So how is that for you? Just kind of that grind. I, I don't think people understand how challenging it is to, to be a sports writer, especially for, you know, for high schools when there's so many teams to cover. Yeah, and there was a unique challenge I had when working at the Daily Union, um, which was uh, publishing in the, it was an afternoon paper. And so we would, 
essentially work a split shift day every day of the week. Um, you know, it was a, a weekday paper published in, uh, Monday through Friday in the afternoon. So uh, our deadline to go to print was 10 a.m. when I started, and then that moved up to 9 a.m. shortly after. So essentially we would, um, you know, come in in the morning and put together the, the sports section and get it ready to, to publish. And those hours would be about 5.30 to about 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning. And then you'd kind of disappear and have your your evening, so to speak, and your free time um, from about the the lunch hour till, you know, four, five in the afternoon, depending on what season it is, you know, spring stuff is getting started a little earlier in the day. In the winter, you might have until, you know, seven or 7.30 at night when basketball games are getting started. Um, but then you'd, you'd essentially go back to work, cover your events, you know, take your photos, you know, write up any of the, your immediate uh, game coverage for the website, get your gamer story for the next day ready catch a few hours of sleep, get up in the morning, finish putting the paper together and then, and, you know, and just start the whole process over. So um, yeah, in terms of, you know, interacting with other people, my, you know, if you're making the comparison to your normal nine to five job, my five o'clock, you know, clock out for the day uh, was really just in the middle of everybody else's work day. So yeah. I agree with you. I didn't really feel like it was eating too much into my, you know, personal life because, you know, my, my personal life was just taking place in the middle of the day and it was a good time to get thing, you know, kind of personal items done. But um, yeah, after, you know, several years of that and yeah, you're right. As you know, life situations changes, all of a sudden you're like, Oof, I feel like I'm running out of time here pretty quick. So yeah. couldn't agree more that it, it your perspective on, on the, and the hours required to, to do the job definitely change. Um, but what I have found is that even moving on to other other roles and you know other job responsibilities and other um, subjects to cover, it still takes that time commitment. But I guess kind of how that time is stacked can certainly be more advantageous than others. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Obviously, I, I've kind of had different relationships before the one I have now, um, you know, engaged to, to my fiance, Alexandria. But uh, obviously, you met, you know, your wife and, and now you have like a family together. So I'm guessing that that went a long way into choosing to maybe find a more consistent hour of a job, you know, something that is a little bit more tangible so that, you know, OK, I'm going to have this time for for my wife or my kid and things like that. So you know, how is that, you know, it, as that's going on, you know, is that even going through your head that you might need to rethink, uh, you know, the kind of work that you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. And, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I have a whole lot to elaborate on. You hit it right on the head and, you know, it's just your, your life situation's changing. And yeah, it's, um, as when I first met my wife, she was working a, a third shift job at the time, and I was working this wonky, uh, you know, split shift job. So it was pretty much, um, you know, when we first started dating, like, like, well, we'll see you on the weekend. <laughs> we just kind of <laughs> go live completely different lives, and you know, obviously, that's not something that's going to last a long time, you know, in, in a in a happy relationship. So yeah, we yeah. both ended up finding, you know, jobs that that kind of fit the lives we wanted to live a little bit better and. You know, we're both pretty happy with where we're at now. 
yeah, I'm guessing the transition to, you know, I definitely want to get in now to, to, to kind of the transition because you had to go. And I know this from just, uh, leaving Wisconsin to Minnesota, I didn't have a job here yet. So I didn't know what to do. Kind of, you know, you, you leave this one job where you have like these certain hours and you have these certain things you have to do. And it, like you said, it's not a nine to five job. It's kind of at random times. And and during certain times of the year, you're almost always thinking about, okay, it, it, it's the playoffs. Like which of my teams are going to be good. How about the opponents they might play? You know, you're really thinking about the game almost more the seasons and the teams almost more than just your normal work schedule. It kind of bleeds in um, to, to other, other times of just thinking, you know, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to, to get a job here, like right away uh, to, to be a sports editor. Uh, but I was really thinking like, do I want to do something that's different from this? Because I'm almost used to the hours at this point. Like I'm almost like, I, I kind of get the way this works and I'm like, it's hard for me to think about that transition of now, you know, you maybe you're working closer to a nine to five or, uh, you know, you have more consistent time where it's like easier to schedule everything as opposed to the sports world where your schedule really depends on how far your teams go in the playoffs, you know? So uh, for you, like, how was that, you know, thinking about that transition and and changing uh, just almost everything about how you were going about your day to day. Cause that's what happens. Um, you know, was, was that going into your thought process too, of like, can I, can I do this? Can I switch out of this role and go to this role? Yeah, I, I think I might've been a little naive on just like how easy it was going to be to kind of switch that work schedule that workload because it's it's real easy to look at those office hours that you're going to work um yeah. you know in a, in a b2b setting um but with that you know just like anything else when um you know when if a breaking news story takes place uh, within your industry you know there might be uh, you, you might have to drop what you're doing and you know, make sure that uh, you're providing that coverage to your readers, just like you would in a newspaper setting. Um, and while there's, you know, a little bit more structured working hours, um, there there comes with, uh, it, at least in my industry, with more significant travel, which, um, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're away from home for several days at a time. Um, I, I think it's a benefit uh, in a, in a, in a perk in a lot of ways, you know, just to get to see some really interesting places all over the world. But, you know, if we're talking about finding that work-life balance and making time for your family, you know, sure, you're not gone from, you know, away from the house, you know, five nights every week covering sporting events, but you might be gone for five consecutive days because you're out covering a, a, a trade show or a conference, you know, you know, in another part of the world. So, um, there's still some, you know, balance that you got to strike. Um, but I think your initial question was how, how do you make that transition? And I was excited to, to move away from just the, um, the sporadic nights, not knowing, you know, until like a week beforehand, what your schedule was going to look like. Um, I, th- I think it's a lot easier to deal with some of that time away from home when you know, it's coming you know, weeks, months, uh, in, in some cases with trade shows, you know, years ahead of time yeah. when, when that conference is going to take place. So, um, 
I, I think at least the way my mind is wired, it's it's better for me personally, just because I I I like to look at the calendar and know exactly you know what's going to be expected of me at certain times of um, the the calendar year, uh, at certain times in the month as our production cycles uh, come through, and um, you know just being able to plan around that uh, better suits me, I think professionally. Yeah, and I think there's some people that uh, that I've known that have left journalism to go in completely different fields, and I'm guessing that that's an insane transition because you're you're comp- kind of leaving everything you've been doing, almost like starting over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I- I'm guessing that helped that you- you're still essentially you're still in journalism, you're still in communications. It's almost the same thing. You know, you're still writing stories, you're still putting stuff on the web, you're still talking to people. Um, you know, you're still putting information and news out there for people. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's now's a good time to to kind of talk about that. You know, how uh, how is you, your day to day job? You know, like what are some of the things that you have to do, and, and what do you like most about it? it, it you talked about going to trade shows. I was going to ask about that. That's got to be kind of cool to go to those and, and kind of see if you're dealing with uh, you know different different tools in the industry and things like that. You kind of get to see it and then talk to people and then, you know, report on it, but you're in the middle of it. You know, it's, that's gotta be kind of an interesting thing to see, especially, you know, with some of the, some of the topics you have to deal with, you know, uh, you know, aviation being one of them, that's, it's pretty fascinating. Just kind of, I was kind of checking out some of the things on there and I'm like, wow, that's all, that's a lot of stuff to, to kind of go through. So, you know, just, you know, what's that like at your job? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of parallels between your, if we can call it the traditional journalism, you know, your, your newspaper world and the business to business media world, at least from an editorial standpoint, um, you know, your goal as an editor is still to serve your readers. And, uh, you know, that's what we set out to do. Um, but in the B2B world, um, you know, the publications are, you know, 100% advertiser supported. You're not relying on you know, subscribers like a newspaper is to keep um, the business afloat. So, so you, you, you kind of toe that line a little bit um, closer in terms of that separation between editorial and sales, you know, where there's a hard cutoff in the newspaper world, it's a little bit of a softer uh, divide in the B2B world. So um, again, the, the goal is still to serve your readers and give your readers the information that they need to do their jobs better but you might do that in ways that support sales efforts at the same time. Uh, that could be as simple as interviewing an advertiser, um, you know, that, you know, that works with our, our sales team and including their comments in an article that I'm writing, or it could be a little bit of a broader scope of just building editorial content. That's going to attract more readers and hence make advertising, you know, a more appealing option you know, for, for our magazine's clients. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it's still editorial work, but there's a little bit more of a team effort sometimes between the uh, editorial team, the sales team, you know, the marketing team and audience development team. Uh, it, it really is a, a group effort to make sure, you know, everyone's pulling in the same direction and, and striving for the same types of goals. But, uh, but beyond that, you know, um, yeah, B2B magazines have very niche audiences, 
but that's not unlike working for you know some of the the smaller local papers that you and I have both worked for you know you're you're still going out there and providing objective news coverage but you're you know you're still cultivating it for a, a specific group of people and that you know are reading your publication and whether that's you know fans of the local football team uh, you know, or parents of the, the, the kids who might be playing uh, varsity sports, you know who your readers are, and you're going to, you know, try and, you know, tailor what you're writing to, you know, to deliver the information they're looking for. So that's really a big part of, of the B2B world is understanding who your audience is, who your advertisers are, and, and really, I guess focusing on on the on whether or not you're you're providing the content they're looking for and evaluating that on an ongoing basis and adjusting where necessary to uh, you know to keep that audience engaged in what you're doing. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how you talk about uh, being a hundred percent you know advertising backed. Obviously, you have your niche too, so you kind of have your audience is your audience. So I feel like there's a little bit more stability there. You don't have to really worry, like, is this thing going to fold? Because that industry is always going to be there. And if you're the person that they go to for that niche news, you know, that's kind of, and I feel like that's kind of why small town papers have survived over daily newspapers too, because of that niche as well. But, you know, it's one of the things I've, I've actually discussed with myself and, you know, like, I feel that, uh, you know, a lot of, newspapers or other print media especially you know in the traditional sense you know not b2b but uh they, they kind of i feel that they, they kind of forgot to to make sure that they look for other ways to make revenue besides just advertising because i don't think it's the same like you can kind of guarantee I'm, I'm guessing in your field because of the people that are reading it you can guarantee a certain kind of advertiser to come in and say, of course, I want to advertise my product because the people are reading about the products. You know, it's not the same in a newspaper. It has to, it, you know, it depends on what this business wants to do in the local town or something or the city, you know, they want to sell something. And as you can see with this pandemic, what happened was is our revenues went down because we were advertiser based and they were struggling. They couldn't have people come to their place because we had protocols in place. Uh, and, and I think it hurt newspapers. Uh, um, you know, it, it it forced newspapers to maybe cut hours, or you know, possibly not. Like our paper hasn't taken on freelancers, which is obviously a strain on us as editors because you know we're covering a bunch of teams. It, it's nice to have a freelancer go and take pictures for you because you can't be at every place on the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, it's kind of why I'm doing this. I I, I kind of want to show that we can, as, as journalists kind of go away from just doing this, this product and saying, this is my revenue when we can maybe make more media, you know, if we had the resources or, or papers or magazines or whatever, even broadcast, like if they just do TV or radio, open it up, do it all, you know, have your print newspaper and then have maybe, uh, have your reporters do podcasts like have a studio in your newsroom uh instead of a random office that nobody really uses because uh, i 
in in four offices I've been in for newspapers. They all had this random office that nothing was in. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been used to do things like that. And uh, it it kind of goes to you know part of the reason why I would think too to transition to another job for some people is they're afraid of that stability. Is my paper going to fold? You know, is my paper going to be able to give me a raise to handle? You know, if you deal with inflation and all that kind of stuff. You know, you don't want to be making the same amount of money now as 10 years from now. Like, it's just not sustainable, especially if you want to have a family and buy a house and, and things like that. Uh, you know, so I feel newspapers and things bringing in new revenues will help alleviate some of those problems. Because instead of just depending on these advertisers, you're giving people another reason to subscribe to your content. Like if, the, you know, maybe like a Netflix type thing where people pay $3 a month and you get you, you your, your three favorite reporters are going to have a podcast about their specific topic, you know, once a month, and maybe they'll have video content to go with it as well as the articles that they put on, on, you know, in the newspaper or online. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get kind of your thoughts on, on the newspaper industry because it, it does make me feel upset, you know, especially like the Chicago Tribune sale. I, I, I don't know if you heard about that, but it, it's upsetting when uh, you know that a company buys something and their whole purpose is to kind of strip it and, you know, make all profit, but not really bother with the workers that are putting in all the hard work and not really caring about the reader because the reader wants the 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 reader wants the content, you know, I think it's wrong for everyone to say, nobody wants to pay for news. Everybody wants to steal news. I think that if you have someone and, and you know, and this definitely goes for me too. Like if you have someone, you're going to subscribe to them, you're going to watch them and you will pay if you need to, whatever it is to get that person's opinion or that person's news, you know, and, and it, as a sports guy, I'm sure, you know, like, you know, you follow a guy in ESPN or something, like you'll follow a bunch of things and, and maybe you'll buy a book from him. You know, you'll kind of support that individual as well as the business he's at. So, I mean, just what are your, your thoughts about that? And did that kind of go into your thought of transitioning, like uh, to be in a more stable environment, maybe knowing it's difficult to run a paper. It's difficult to keep it afloat uh, with the model that's in place right now. Yeah, I don't think that um, personally that wasn't uh, you know part of my decision to kind of shift gears uh, professionally. But you know, I, I, I do agree with your your point about you know having a variety of ways to deliver news to people. I really you know that's really going to be uh, a part of the industry, um, whether we're talking newspapers. B2B magazines or, you know, any other media outlet, uh, you have to be able to reach your readers. And in the case of podcasts or videos, your listeners, your viewers, your audience, you know, um, you, you need a variety of ways to, to reach them. And we're seeing that, that evolution taking place, you know, presently and, and for the last several years. So, you know, podcasts, obviously, uh, you know, are, are, have just really taken over, you know, social, um, kind of the, the broader culture, uh, videos and blogs have been, uh, you know, a staple on the internet for a long time now. And it's just, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not going to get the people to sit down and open a broadsheet newspaper, but you do have people looking for information other places, they're going to find the information they're searching for, but are they going to find it from you? And that's, you know, that's really the important part 
of this journalism, you know, evolution. And where I'm optimistic is that journalism has always attracted, you know, the, the lifelong learners, you know, the, the people who, who they're in journalism because they want to learn about what other people are doing and tell their stories and, you know, and, and just, you know, kind of move from topic to topic. Uh, I think journalists have to be naturally curious. So I, I think that quality uh, of, I think the, I think that type of person that kind of harnesses that lifelong learning quality is going to be more important than ever to the landscape of the industry as this just kind of continues to change and, and we ultimately land where, you know, journalism's going to be for, you know, many years to come moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that point. I mean, uh, like you said, that's actually some of the positives. Uh, I, I'm sure you remember some of the random features you might have got, you know, at the Daily Union or even, the, you know, the Waterloo Marshall. It's interesting to hear some of the stories and you know, obviously some some high school kids are are more adept to, to talking more, maybe opening up more than others. Some are kind of shy or or just aren't used to the interview process. But sometimes you get an old like an old timer, like somebody who played, you know, he's like 75 and just wants to talk your ear off about the times he played baseball for the school and, and some of the things he did. That that's like some of the best part, I think, of being uh you know in the industry of uh, you know and and you could get those stories other ways too. And I think I'm guessing for you that you transitioned to this other thing, but you remained as a board member for the Ford Atkins in general. So you're still around baseball. You're still around kind of that home talent league you used to cover. And, and um, I, you know, I noticed that you contributed and, and helped out the daily union a couple of times with Ford Atkinson stuff. Uh, so you, you kind of are still there and, you know, I love sports and I'm, uh, I know you, you love sports as well. So um, you know, when you think about being a part of Fort Atkinson and being a part of baseball still, uh, and, and kind of you, now you're a part of the story, you get to talk to these guys and kind of you, you're seeing the moments if there's something, and maybe you talk to somebody who used to play for the team back in, you know, however many years, uh, that's gotta be fun. And I'm guessing that ha that has to be really nice to still be in that world, uh, no matter what else you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think personally, a, a sense of community is, is always been appealing. Um, you know, that, that's probably a big part of why, you know, B2B media is interesting. You get into these uh, niche markets and you really submerge yourself, you know, in this, you know, professional community. Um, you know, and then in terms of, yeah, just my, my love for sports, uh, you know, I, got involved with the uh, home talent team here in town just from uh, you know providing coverage for the newspaper um, kind of saw how the team operated and ended up spending more time around the park throughout the summer and yeah just found myself looking for you know being interested in, in getting involved in, in what they're doing and yeah ultimately I, I left the newspaper world but yeah we, it was nice being able to keep my foot in the sports world even if I wasn't writing about it on a regular basis by you know just kind of trying to do some of the things behind the scenes to keep the team afloat and keeping the seasons running smoothly so it's been a, an awesome experience and, you know, we're really just an, another wonderful community to, to be a part of. Yeah. And it, you know, speaking of baseball, we've kind of hit on some hard hitting things, a little bit of hard hitting, you know, not too hard hitting, but 
you know, I definitely want to get a, maybe a little bit more fun talk, you know, talk about some, some baseball. Cause I, I, yeah. uh, I can't, you know, I, I love baseball. It's one of my favorite sports. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, sports in general, it's fun to talk about, but, uh, you know, talking it, and I, I will get to the MLB uh, soon. Cause I'm sure we have a lot to say there, but, uh, I do want to stick with kind of the townie ball at this point. So, you know, I cover the home talent league in Wisconsin as well as that's where Fort Atkinson is. And, uh, you know, obviously you're still involved right now. The amateur baseball I cover here is the Champlin low Gators, a class B team um, that's uh, playing Champlin park. And, uh, or I guess the, the town is Champlin. The school is Champlin park, a, a little confusing sometimes, uh, but uh, you know, it, it's real. There's something about town baseball. Like I feel like town baseball is, is getting into the way Europe cl- like clubs used to be, you know, soccer clubs that have been around for hundreds of years and, you know, MLB teams have been around forever now. Like some teams if, uh, from like early 1900s or before the major leagues, they were clubs. And, you know, as you know, in home talent, like there's some teams that have been around since like the twenties, you know, they have, and, and maybe we're around before that, but we're just called a different team or we're part of a different league. Mm-hmm. So you can really trace some of the baseball in a town for hundreds of years, kind of like you can with soccer in Europe. And, uh, you know, personally, when I see that, I see it as like the pure form of baseball. It's really fun. You're getting, you know, you're getting players that kind of have, some are coming out of high school. Some have played college. Some have made like the minor leagues, you know, things like that. Some are just like, you know, they went on and did something else after high school, but they love baseball so much. They wanted to be involved and, you know, they, they can pitch and hit. So they wanted to play for a, for a hometown team. And, and I think that's amazing. You know, right now I'm kind of looking at early eight or, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s as I'm doing profiles on some, uh, for a show that I'm doing legends of the diamond that, uh, you know, when you're listening to this podcast right now, there's two episodes out right now and two more will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, looking at guys like John Wesley Donaldson and Grant home run Johnson, like they all have like amazing nicknames, you know, like it, like it, and they're playing for these crazy town teams where every town had a team that they called them barnstorming teams where they'd like play for this team and they travel around to different towns and play all these different club teams. Sometimes they do exhibition games with like actual major league teams because those you know, I don't, I don't know if spring training was as much as a thing way back then. So like, you know, there's stories of like grant home run Johnson, like hitting home runs off of like Detroit tigers pitching and things like that. So, or like, you know, you, there's a box score of these players playing the Cincinnati reds and it's like, you know, Bertha, Minnesota, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think about that. These small towns are doing things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, when, when you look at kind of, Townie ball and being involved in it. I, I'm guessing you're kind of like me. It's, it's almost fascinating, especially looking at the history. I almost wish that uh, it was as big as it used to be, that there were more towns involved and that, you know, it was more lucrative and maybe more people were paying attention because a lot of these small teams, they used to get like 10,000 people to go to their games. It's just a little town team. Like the whole town would come up and surrounding towns, especially depending on rivalries and things. So, I mean, just, uh, you know, talk about, talk about some of some just being around it and, and, uh, you know, some of your thoughts on, on that part of, you know, amateur baseball. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really appreciate that 
pure form of baseball that you alluded to. And in, in addition to that, you know, I, I think a lot of times these hometown baseball teams have a tendency to take on a personality that kind of reflects, you know, the town they play for, you know, obviously, you know, it, it can may, may be as simple as just the team is comprised of people who live in that town. So yeah, of course they behave the same way the other people do in town, but, you know, I think you've probably covered enough for these games. Like I have that when you go different places, you expect a certain atmosphere, you know, like, you know, some, some towns are maybe a little bit more competitive and it feels a little more tense at their ballpark when you're there. Uh, Other places, um, you know, maybe focus a little bit more on the side attractions and stuff. And it makes for, you know, more like the modern day minor league baseball game experience where there's just, you know, there's a lot of family fun going on and also a baseball game, you know, and you kind of get a sense for that. And then, you know, there's, there's some of these um, home talent teams and, you know, and maybe the, I would guess the same uh, up by you in Minnesota, but, you know, there are some teams where it is, it's just like a couple of cornfields and in the middle of it, there's a baseball diamond and then like a dozen people kind of gathered to watch, but those dozen people love that baseball team. And it doesn't, I don't think it takes away, you know, from, from that team's personality. It, it might just be, you know, a smaller community or, you know, less people involved in the team management itself. But um, either way you go, you, all these Towns have different personalities. The teams reflect that. Heck, sometimes, like I said, even the that the diamonds out in the cornfield kind of reflect. You know, the fields themselves kind of reflect the community they're a part of, and and that's the part that I find you know really wholesome and you know, and entertaining about that level of baseball. Yeah, definitely. And you know, you kind of it's funny you talk about cornfields. I remember you know, Utica is essentially that it's just like a kind of a random place. And, and we, that was in our coverage area for, for our, when I worked for the Stoughton Courier Hub and um, it's just like, there's a cornfield and, and a ball ballpark. And depending on how good the team was, maybe there, or how big the game was, there might be maybe more people there, but yeah, a lot of times there was just a couple of people, but they were loud. They were into the game. They, you know, they were, you know, that and they fielded some really good teams too. Like they, they were a tough, <laughs> they were a tough out some years. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I think that, like you said, that part is kind of fascinating to kind of see these little towns and just the, this baseball world that's there. This like kind of love for the game, you know, especially with the players, like the the competitiveness of the players, you know. You know, we were talking before this podcast and sometimes there's brawls at these games because the competitiveness gets a little insane. You know, it, you know, it's, it's fun to see. And that's, that's one of the things where I kind of wish more people uh, maybe knew, like, I feel like a lot of people don't even know that some of these teams exist, you know, like they kind of go about their day and maybe they like baseball, maybe they're casual fans, but at some of these stadiums, you know, like Fort Atkinson, you can go grab a beer and, and sit down and watch the game, you know, uh, and it's like seven o'clock on like a Thursday night, like Thursday night league stuff. And uh, th- that's really cool. Like, hey, I'm going to go take a walk to the game real quick, catch a couple innings, grab a yeah. beer. Like, I-, I-, I love that, you know, like th- it's kind of it, it show it- it's and 
you're going to see people that you know, like you said, the community. I just think that that's, that's so cool to, to kind of have, um, you know, a part of these players. And, and I know it's kind of a mixture of ages. A lot of times on these teams, like I said, like kids just out of high school, maybe that are trying to get some extra work in before playing in college or something like that. Or, you know, sometimes there's like 40 year olds on the team and they're still playing. And, you know, some of those 40 year olds are hitting the ball better than the 25 year old. And, the 25 year olds thinking like, I need to get better. <laughs> you know? uh, the generals just split a double header with a team sporting a 55 year old catcher. Wow. That guy, he can play. <laughs> He's good. He's a very fi- good. I have 55 year old catcher. That's, that's amazing. Um, that actually goes back into doing research for the show. I'm doing a lot of those uh, former players in the 1900s, like, that, you know, obviously they didn't get to make the major leagues. They were playing 50 years old. Like, you know, and it, 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 the stats that are in the paper that we know of, because not everything was taken in, he'll say he was batting like 450 in like a 30 game stretch, you know, <laughs> facing major league pitching and exhibition games, you know, <laughs> right. like just, it's just crazy stuff where you're just like, how, how is that even like physically possible? <laughs> like, I don't know many major leaguers that have made it past 45, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but it really does, you know, just highlight to how the professional level has evolved, you know, over the years too. you know, obviously, the professional level was always producing the best of the best available. But a lot of those guys weren't even dedicating, you know, their full time, you know, focus to the game. A lot of them, you know, would play during the season and go back to their, you know, their their day job, so to speak, as yeah. soon as the season let out, you <laughs> yeah. know, and so the fact that, you know, guys can just focus year round on being a better pitcher, you know, it, it definitely shoots that quality of play up big time and not to take away from any of the examples you've shared, but, you know, it's, um, I'm going to guess that like if Max Scherzer rolled into Fort Atkinson today, um, <laughs> he'd mow it's, people down. <laughs> it's good of some of the young players uh, we have coming up here. I'm not sure too many are, uh, are, are making good contact and putting balls into play. And that's one thing too. Scouts used to go to those old school hometown games and townie ball games, because you might see a player that maybe didn't get an opportunity to go somewhere, you know? Uh, especially back then, not everybody went to college, obviously way back in the day. So the scouts would come, they, they get you. And sometimes they'd sign you. They'd be like, I like your delivery. I like your stuff. We can work with you. Um, so I'm, that's not there anymore. So I, I don't know how, if you're that good, you're probably not going to play for the home talent league at 30. You're going to try to make the minor leagues or something, you know, but right. or make something, you know, different like that, or, or even, you know, try to play for some of those other independent teams, you know, the, I know the Mallards usually take college kids, but you know, there are other leagues like that where, you know, Hey, try out for this league. And, you know, or some players go to Japan to play, to play in those professional or Korea. So, you know, I think that, that, that probably hurts, you know, someone being able to, to, to light up a hundred mile per hour fastball that like, you know, dips and dives and moves all over the plate that they're not used to seeing, you know, (laughs) But yeah, it would be amazing if Max Scherzer showed up at Fort Atkinson. <laughs> I would go. I would attend that game. I'd root my my heart out for the Generals, but uh, probably just be in awe of Mad Max just spinning nasty nasty sliders into the zone and making our guys uh, <laughs> struggle a little bit, to say the least. 
Oh yeah. I, I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing with professional too, right? Like the, the movement on pitches, like it, it, sometimes you don't get it on television, um, you know, or even at the game. But if you've ever like really looked at what's going on, as I'm sure you do. And, and I do, cause maybe we're, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at that kind of stuff as baseball fans. We're not, I wouldn't call us casual fans by any means. So when that slider like dips down after they just got like a 95 mile per hour, like on the corner. And then this next slider comes and it just dips down at the last second. It's still 87 miles. And there's only like a five, six mile per hour difference half the time. Um, but it's enough of a difference with that movement that this is a professional hitter and you made him swing. Like he didn't know how to play baseball. Like, I just think that that's amazing. Uh, you know, in a major league game, when you see that, this is like one of my favorite things to see is a pitcher making a great hitter look like a fool, you know? Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, I, obviously, there's been a lot of conversation lately about, um, you know, what's wrong with baseball because the pitchers are excelling. And, you know, there's probably plenty of debates to be made about tinkering with how, you know, with the makeup of the ball. And I don't want to get us down that rabbit hole, oh, yeah. you know, right off the bat here. But I bring it up to just say that <clears throat> I don't mind the the dominant pitching. Like, it's it's been entertaining for me. You know, like, um, of course, uh, a monster home run is always going to be a little hair-raising and, and exciting. But um, that's not to say that just because they're low-scoring games, that they're not competitive games. And I, and, and as long as they're competitive games to me, they're compelling games. So um, yeah, I, I'm with you. Some of these, some of the things pitchers are doing, you know, with these, uh, you know, off the chart spin rates and, you know, just making the ball, you know, dive, you know, and, and not just getting big breaks, but being able to control when the ball breaks, like it really is, you know, impressive stuff. And, you know, until batters want to stop swinging for the fences and, you know, just being content with a strikeout or a home run every time up pitchers are gonna, are gonna continue to dominate. And honestly, I'm, I get excited when I go, when we're going like two days between no hitters. I, I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kind of the same way. I do think that there's been an insane amount of no hitters lately, but uh uh, you know, sometimes that stuff like that happens in baseball too. It's such a crazy, that's what's great about it. You never know what, what's going to happen. Some random pitcher comes out of nowhere, throws a no hitter or perfect game. And you're like, you know, to be honest, most of the time, the best pitchers don't actually throw the no hitters or perfect games too. It's usually some random guy. Like maybe he's decent. Maybe he's got a six ERA. And for some reason he just came into this game and, and had the, some crazy stuff, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, the, the Wade Miley one was the crazy one for me. And I think Wade Miley's a, a fine pitcher, but I don't know if he had thrown a complete game in five years, you know? So yeah. when you, when you find out he, he spun a no hitter, <laughs> it was like, really, <laughs> you know, I just, I, I, you know, I'm good for him. I, I'm not taking anything away from him, but you know, that's one where you're just like, I, that guy usually, you know, gives you four or five, six solid innings, you know, on a good day. And then you turn it over to the pen. That's yeah. the kind of guy he is. And yeah, he's getting in on the no hitter game. You know, things are definitely skewing the pitchers, the pitchers way at that point. Yeah, absolutely. 
So keeping with the MLB now, uh, obviously you're a Cubs fan, so I want to get into this because I'm sure you would love to talk about it. Uh, you, you had some great times, I'm guessing, when they won the World Series a couple years ago, just like I did when the Sox won, you know, 2005. But, you know, you waited so long, just like I waited long when the White Sox finally won. But obviously the Cubs have been through a lot of misery. The Sox are a team that the misery was just them never even being competitive most of the time, you know. To this day, if they make the playoffs this year, it's the first time that they've made the playoffs in back-to-back seasons. That's how insane it is to be a White Sox fan. Like, they never have back-to-back good years. But, you know, the Cubs have been close, just missed out on stuff. Uh, you know, that, hor- that you know, obviously the... I'm sure you don't want to go down those rabbit holes as, as some of those other series where, you know, things happened and then and, and things went askew, but you finally got that world series. How awesome was that for you? How exciting uh, was that for you to, to, to just be a part of? Um, I've enjoyed it more recently in the moment, Anthony, it's um, I'm not looking for pity or anything, but I didn't find the world series really enjoyable. There was just so much nerves yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and just just bagging <laughs> that things would go right yeah. and then um you know they, they fell behind in the series three to one you know which allowed you to relax a little bit because you're like well you know this this isn't going well but maybe if they're competitive the remainder you know maybe it won't feel quite so sour and they get to a game seven and if you recall there is you know rain delay yeah at, you yeah. know right at the end of the game and it's just yeah it's just so nerve-wracking that it, it really wasn't a pleasant experience and then when they won um i didn't jump around or scream or anything i just kind of like sat down and like took a breath and just it was far more relief for me personally than joy yeah. and then uh, then during like the world series parade, you know, there's a little bit more celebrating than, um, you know, and family members have gotten me, you know, the, the commemorative world series DVD and you can kind of go back and watch it after the fact and kind of appreciate it, enjoy some of the high moments and, you know, kind of just roll your eyes and you know, shudder at some of the low moments. And, and really it's, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just over dramatic, but it's taken a couple of seasons to get removed from the situation to enjoy it more. And I don't know if that's the same experience you had watching your team win, but you know, I, I can appreciate how hard it is to win the World Series. And the playoffs have expanded as of late, but traditionally it's just so hard to even get into the postseason. And then you got to be playing their best baseball at that time. A lot of things got to fall into place to even win one. So I'd kind of resign myself to, to that mentality that it's not a big deal if your team isn't winning, you know, World Series every five years or whatever the case might be. Yeah. Uh, you'd like to go, you know, shorter spans than, you know, entire centuries between championships. <laughs> but, um, you know, when they, when they finally did win one, like I said, it really just was more relief than like you know, ecstatic joy. But w- what was it like for the, when the White Sox? Yeah. When did you, did you have a similar experience? So one of the things that, uh, you know, I look at is, 
it was interesting because I, w- I was at Whitewater, obviously. Um, and so not being in Chicago where, you know, my family would have been in it, watching all the games, like especially my brother. And, you know, when they won, everybody ran to the parking lot from the neighborhood since it's right there and they were like dancing and celebrating. So I wasn't a part of that. So, and they, they did sweep Houston, but there were a lot of tense moments in that series still. Like it wasn't, I always look at it as like, that was like the hardest sweep I've ever seen. Like, you know, they could have very easily not won that series. And, and when they first won, it was kind of the same as what you're saying. Like, it was like relief because you, you know the stories. You know that obviously they hadn't won in your lifetime at this point, and there aren't anybody that you know that's alive that was around when they won last time. You know? <laughs> so it's like you never really knew about them winning. And uh, because they didn't win a World Series, like obviously the Sox have been to a couple postseasons and things like that, but it's almost like this as a fan, this weight on your shoulder of like, you know, they're doing good, but I just expect them to mess this up, even when they're like in it. You know, you just expect them to blow it somehow. Like they're gonna blow this. And I'm sure uh Boston Red Sox fans were thinking the same same thing, you know, before they won finally. Uh that, you know, also I think it was the year before the Sox won, actually. And it was just kind of a, it was like a surreal moment that they won. And it's kind of the same where I didn't really take it in until like maybe the parade when I got to watch that on TV and uh, kind of celebrate it that way. And then when I went back home and I saw everybody had like, you know, the, like my dad had saved all the Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Tribune front pages of like every win in the playoffs. And he was like, like, and he gave them to me. And I was like, able to look at those, you know, like I was able to take it in more then. Um, and actually it has it allows me to enjoy now more. Like obviously the Sox were, were rebuilding forever. And, you know, they finally are hitting a stride here where they're going to be competitive, hopefully for, for a couple of years. Um, you know, it'd be nice to see them win a World Series. But for me, it'd be nicer just to see them in the postseason. You know, just to see them in competitive games in September. And I'm guessing that that's kind of how you've been with the Cubs, too. Like, they won the World Series. That's off your shoulder. Now you could just enjoy enjoy these games. Enjoy that they're competitive. You know, I was going to say, like, moving on to this season, you, you know, not everyone was on the Cubs, like, doing anything this year. When I look at a team like the Cubs, I'm like, they still have players that have experience from, from the last couple of years of winning. And they still when you win and then you have a couple of years of winning, there's a culture and kind of a confidence around you. Um, I thought their offense is still one of the scary offenses. Like the Cubs are never out of it. And I'm sure you know this, like, I feel like the eighth inning, ninth inning, they know how to take walks. They know how to get on base, like still to this day, like, um, and, and they've gone on a streak here. Obviously they did well against San Diego, you know, th- the last couple of days, but um, you know, for me, I thought their bullpen was going to be a little, uh, just looking at their bullpen. I'm like, I'm not so sure their bullpen could hold up a whole year. So I'm like, they'll probably make a wild card 85, 90 wins, but 
they've been doing pretty good recently. And there's some guys that are doing better than you think. So when you look at the Cubs this year, do you see them as once again being in that? Do you see them maybe winning the division? Because I don't see anyone else running away with it right now. No, the the NL Central had a really bizarre offseason where uh, everyone just seemed to be doing the bare minimum to remain competitive in a pretty mediocre collection of teams. Um, the Cardinals probably are the exception. You know, obviously just when you bring in uh, Nolan Arenado, like you're making a pretty clear statement that you're, you'd yeah. like to be good. Um, but it seemed like most of the conversation around the Cubs was, well, who, who out of that core of uh, position players are still going to be with the team at the end of the season, you know, and between Rizzo and uh, Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, uh, Javier Baez and Wilson Contreras, like, you know, can you realistically expect two of those four to be here at the end of the year? And if so, like which two, that seemed to be the whole conversation uh, leading up to this season. And, and now that, you know, the majority of the, of the team is playing well uh those four you know included the bullpen as you mentioned looked like it was going to be a weak spot but they have found some really good late inning uh pitchers to kind of handle the seventh and eighth innings and then uh craig kimbrell you know looks like his old self again uh, he was there was a lot of dicey moments with him when he first came came into the Cubs organization and he he's kind of back into his uh, shutdown closer role. So if the, if the bullpen's going to be shored up and the position players are going to play to their potential, it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of force the front office's hand to kind of keep that group intact to make, you know, you know, the contracts are running up. So it may still end up just being one last run, uh, you know, to the playoffs, but uh, it it sure would be fun as a fan, you know, to, to see this core break up that way versus just getting to July and punting on the season and, and sending, you know, two, you know, really mainstay players off somewhere else to get some more prospects like um, like they did with you Darvish before the season even started, you know, a trade like that's deflating for, for the fan base and you don't like to see it. So um, given the way everything was building up to the year to see the Cubs winning some games here and sitting in first place, even by a narrow margin, you know, that's, that's, it adds some promise to the summer. There's nothing worse than, knowing your favorite baseball team is out of contention at the end of May. Like that's, yeah. that's a bummer. You know, yeah. The rest of your summer is going to be lousy. Yeah. So uh, I'm happy to be in the, the alternative situation here. And for you, the White Sox, you know, I, I follow the Cubs, but I find the White Sox to be the far more compelling roster in Chicago right now. Um, I, I got to imagine you feel the same way. The only thing that's uh, not exciting is the, you know, the cranky manager sitting at the end of the bench trying to ruin everybody's good time. Yeah. And that's hilarious because as you say that, like, I thought it was a mistake that they hired LaRusso. I, I, I Everyone did. <laughs> like, I don't even understand how it gels with them. There was other guys that I thought would be interesting 
because of they knew, you know, advanced baseball metrics and they actually know the rules of the modern game, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they probably would, would back up their player if somebody throws at them. But, you know, it, it, for me, I feel like La Russa has already lost several games because of certain, you know, either bad decisions or just simply that he didn't know the rules that are in this season. Like you would think that somebody would be telling you what the rules are. I I just don't understand how you can say, I didn't know that we had our best, our closer didn't have to run at second base and possibly get injured because now he's base running in extra innings. Like (laughs) strange, strange choices that he's made. Is his, uh, is his coaching staff, um, you know, kind of old school people like him as he, as he rounded out, you know, to your point, it seems like a bench coach or, you know, one of the, you know, first or third base coaches might, you know, get in his ear and say, Hey, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, this is how the new rule works. I, I don't know enough about the depth of the coaching staff. Is he just surrounded himself with a, you know, cronies essentially or does he have a diverse makeup on the coaching staff no there there is a pretty diverse makeup the 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 hitting coach is kind of uh he's pretty raw like he'll be in interviews and 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 be telling a story about you know something he was telling andrew vaughn and and he literally is in an interview with the media and he'll just start throwing f-bombs you know like i told i told vaughn that you know f the homers just just get that average up just get that f and average up you know I, I like that kind of rawness of him. And then uh, their pitching coach is the guy that uh, coached all those great players out of that high school team. Um, you know, Giolito and, and, okay. uh, and the, 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 his name's escaping me, but the, the Cardinals pitcher um, and uh, you know, they're, they're, he, he's kind of worked with guy. He worked with Giolito a couple of years ago before he was our hitting coach. And that's when Giolito went from, you know, looking like a boss to the sort of the ace that he is now. Um, so th- he, there are players there, but I feel like, you know, maybe they didn't understand their roles or like how far they can take those roles. Uh, like Larusa seems like someone who uh, likes to be in charge just based on his thoughts on that whole situation with your mean Mercedes with the swinging at a three Oh pitch. And I, I do want to, to get into that with you and, and we could just get into that now. And then I'll, I'll transition to, to, to other things, but um, you know, in that situation, like I understand the unwritten rules of the game and you don't want to be a jerk and just do certain things and, you know, stealing bases when you're up 15 to nothing, things like that. But they put a positional player to pitch and to me once that happens you know whatever it's just people playing baseball now <laughs> you know he swung at a 3-0 pitch but he he had kind of a rivalry with that pitcher they, they kind of had a friendly thing going on so i mean i don't see anything wrong with him in that situation swinging at a 3045 mile per hour like ethos pitch that like curved right down <laughs> into the home plate and, and he hit it like over 400 feet which more people should be talking about that, by the way. Like, you know how hard it is to hit a 45 mile per hour pitch over 400 feet? Like, that's insane. Uh, but, you know, I understand, like, maybe he missed a sign. You tell him in the clubhouse, why are you telling the media? And then when other players backed him up and said, you know, I don't see anything, I, I kind of want him to be himself. Like, LaRusso's comment was, I have an office and they don't. Like, I, I don't know why you would, you know, 
do that to your players. Why you throw them out like that. And then to not back them up when someone threw at you in public, right. To say, I don't find anything wrong with that. That to me, that shows weakness. Like, you know, like, and and it it can't feel good in the clubhouse. And I, I have to say that after he said that the Sox went from scoring 16 runs against Minnesota to going through a stretch when they scored like four runs in five games makes you think like, was their mental like approach different? Like, did he mess with them? You know, uh, uh, it's definitely nerve wracking in that sense. I do like that. The Sox are competitive though. Now, uh, even with injuries, I feel like they've been in every single game except maybe two. So even the games they lost, they had a shot. And I'm guessing with you, with the Cubs is the same thing, you know, especially in their, uh, sort of their prime, so to speak, when you knew that they were going to be definitely making the playoffs a couple of years ago, you know, um, they, they were always in a game. It's it like down two runs in the ninth. Doesn't matter. They're still in this game. You know, uh, they gave up a couple runs early. Doesn't matter. They're still in this game. You know, they were always in games and th- th- that's what the Sox. I feel like they're always in games. They, they can score in different ways and their pitching staff is very good. Their bullpen has been shaky at times, but when you look at it, it still seems solid overall, especially the top guys. So it makes you excited that if they make the postseason, you can't not say that they're, you know, like they're definitely World Series contenders. But like you said, how hard it is to win being a contender and actually winning two completely separate things. So, you know, I'm kind of right now, I'm just kind of enjoying it. Like, they won the World Series in 05. So to me, I'm like, this isn't like breaking a 100-year drought. You know, it's just, they're finally competitive. I want to enjoy it this time. I don't want to be like, are they finally going to win it? You know, like, and be so nerve-wracked about everything. You know, it is nerve-wracking when you're following your team and it's a close game, but it's a fun nerve-wrack, you know? Like, it's like, I love that competitiveness of it. Like, I want to, you know, watch a game and be like, you know, on the edge of my seat like waiting to see what happens that's exciting for me um and and to it to enjoy that in the moment is a different thing than being so nervous that they're going to blow it again that you actually don't comprehend what just happened you know yeah and i think the roster that the the white Sox, you know it, it lends itself to that excitement um up and down you know the the order one through nine like there are exciting young players and you know they're playing without some really key guys who are hurt like Luis Robert Eloy Jimenez you know you plug those guys into this lineup and it's like it's already very exciting you put some young talent like that on top of this I I think it's going to be a really fun summer down on the south side yeah and you know I I I have to say that when looking at other the other MLB teams right now, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's something that it kind of irks me. And, and we could start this off, actually, uh, because I, I'm talking about how many bad teams there are. <laughs> there are a lot of bad teams, and I feel like there's more bad teams than I remember being in any year. But, you know, from that rundown that just happened with, you know, Javi Baez, like the that ridiculous, like whatever is going on in the Pittsburgh pirates head like that first baseman like you're just like all you got to do is step on the back and you're chasing them back to home plate now i'm not saying that you know technically you probably don't want to run back to home plate and and 
mess with your other runner, but it worked. The the run scored. It was an exciting play. I'm sure you were like, what just happened? You know, because <laughs> like, yes. it's just so insane. <laughs> but like, when I see bad plays like that, and then, you know, like you look at the record and then you realize that Arizona's really bad. Colorado's really bad. Baltimore's really bad. The NL East is super inconsistent. And it's like, is that like, is anyone going to like move it around? I mean, the, the, the NL central, like, yeah, like you said, the Cardinals and the Cubs are doing good now, but you know, the Brewers have been inconsistent. The other teams in the division, like the Reds are kind of as a baseball fan, the Reds are disappointing because I know that they lost Bauer, but I didn't think that they would play as bad as they've been playing. And then in the, in the American league, it's the same thing. The twins are doing terrible as well. Um, you know, teams in the, the West aren't looking like amazing teams. Like even the Yankees struggled at times this year, but you know, you think of them as a good team, but it, I feel like everything is down in the league for some reason. And it could have to do with the pandemic and things being different. And they had a short season last year, but a lot of these teams like the pirates, they've had many years of being bad and it's because they don't develop. They don't, you know, pay for players. They don't make smart trades or smart, like dumping players and then still rebuilding 10 years later doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, I don't understand it. And I don't know, like maybe you're upset like me, but I feel like teams should at least be more competitive. Like, I just don't understand why there could be, there's a possibility of like five teams losing a hundred games this year. Like that's insane. Yeah. You know, it's, you're right. It could be some, a bit of a hangover from, from the pandemic season, obviously, you know, we didn't really get a, a real clear measurement of the, of the league last year uh, with the exception of the Dodgers. You know, I, I think from the get go, they were head and shoulders above the rest of the field and it made sense that they won the world series. Um, but coming back this year, you know, just, you know, keeping with uh, examples uh, in Chicago, um, the Cubs players have talked a lot about how the atmosphere has changed since the fans have been returning to the ballpark. So, um, you know, if other teams start getting that boost from just having a different atmosphere around the stadiums, it'd be, I'd be interested to see if some of those, um, you know, some of those weaker records start to improve. That's not to say that, you know, like the Pirates are just going to be world beaters, you know, a month from now, but um, some of those teams that are, the, the inconsistent ones you mentioned uh, across several divisions. It'd be interesting to see if, um, if, if things stabilize a little bit more as the game we've come to know it as kind of gets back to normal. Yeah. And I do want to call out too, that the, obviously the minor leagues were affected even more with the pandemic, you know, um, I think they've only recently restarted seasons and a lot of those players hadn't played a year and a half unless they were at that alternate, all, you know, that alternate site where they right. got to play scrimmages against each other in case they needed to be called up, you know, but that's a long time for, especially for a young player to go without playing. Um, so that's got to slow down probably some teams rebuilds. I saw an article about, you know, how dare the Tigers still be rebuilding after having all these draft picks. And it's like, well, you know, it's probably really hard for the rookies during the pandemic to, to get up to speed, you know, right. so I kind of understand that part of it. But at the same time, I'm like, at some point, you know, some of these owners have to rethink the way they run their teams. And, you know, like there's, it, I don't know if there's, if the, 
if a team can go from a hundred losses, like, you know, the Cubs obviously did to win this, the world series, Houston did, although they, they apparently cheated. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the Sox hopefully are going from a hundred losses to, to now being competitive. It, it's possible to rebuild your team if you know what you're doing. And I feel like a lot of these teams just kind of, they're like, eh, fans will still come to the games. You know, it's cool. And that part of it, I don't, I, I wish wasn't there. It's kind of an American sports thing too. You know, you see that in other sports as well. Um, you know, and, and some sports people tank so that they could get higher draft picks like basketball and football. But, you know, when you, sometimes I, I kind of feel like it'd be fun to have a relic. Like if we, if there was more baseball clubs, like home talent league team, not to say that they would do this, but you know, minor league teams, uh, things like that if there was like a relegation system, like in European soccer, we're like, Oh, sorry, Pittsburgh pirates, you're demoted. Your triple a team did good. They're promoted, you know, to your spot now. (laughs) And then, and then now that they're in the majors. So people are going to want to sign with that team. You know what I mean? Like, so like, I know that's impossible. It's never going to happen because of the money, but you know, sometimes I think that that would be cool. Uh, But I mean, a lot of people will talk about why some, there's more teams that don't do well uh, every year and that maybe there's too many teams. Now we've had so many expansion teams and the leagues are huge and there's just so many teams um, that it's almost impossible to make sure that all of them are good because of that, because, you know, the best teams players are going to want to play for those teams or, you know, some teams make more money so they could pay, you know, 300 million for a Manny Machado or something like that. But, you know, or somebody could pick up Bryce Harper like Philadelphia. But I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think, do you think that where we're at's good? Do you think, uh, you know, maybe uh, more playoff teams would help some of these lesser teams, like maybe be more competitive in the season because they have a shot at postseason revenues and things like that? You know, it may, I, I guess I can't argue with the logic that if, more teams could get in more teams would be incentivized to, you know, to, to buy at the trade deadline versus just kind of packing it in for the year. Um, but that said, fundamentally like opposed to further playoff expansion, I really like the exclusivity of it, but that's from a fan's point of view. If I was writing checks, you know, for player salaries every year, I might not feel the same way. Um, and I, and I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. I think it's that lack of competitiveness more times than not comes back to the bean counters, uh, and, and the, the ownership groups who are, who are going to ultimately, you know, you know, pay these salaries. And, you know, I, I think the player pool argument, you know, has been made. I think that's kind of a crutch to just say, you know, to kind of, distract from what the real reasons are you know to say well you know maybe we'd be better if there weren't so many teams better than us you know that that doesn't seem fair I I think the teams that want to be competitive are I do think that sometimes the way the 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 major leagues are structured kind of bottoming out and and starting over from scratch can sometimes be a necessity and the teams that don't embrace that sometimes just languish kind of in mediocrity you know they they have a couple of good players but they don't have enough around them so they kind of you know they they can't quite get over that hump 
Um, you know, the, the angels kind of seem to be in that, that purgatory and they've got the best player in the world in Mike Trout and Shohei Otani's finally doing the things they thought he was going to be able to do. Yeah. And there's just like there's a sub 500 in, in like third or fourth place right now. And it's, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, but and with all that, I don't have a solution for the angels. <laughs> I don't think they should bottom out now because they got Mike Trout, but yeah. you know, it's, um, it's tricky but the the fact of the matter is there isn't a salary cap if you're willing to pay for players and you're willing to take the hit with the luxury tax any owner of a baseball team has the resources to put together a competitive team i just don't know how you incentivize that you know to to get all 30 teams trying to win at the same time so um it's a it's a pretty long-winded non-answer, but <laughs> I guess what it boils down to is that if an owner if an owner or an ownership group wants to win, they absolutely can make immediate moves to make that happen. It, there's no guarantee that they're going to win just because they spend money, but they they can try if they want to. Uh, you know, crying poverty because they didn't get to sell tickets last year. I, I, I don't buy that too much. You know, these are all billionaires running these teams, uh, or at the very least, very, very multi-millionaires. Like, <laughs> weathering a bad year is miserable, but not making as much money as you thought you were going to isn't quite the same as losing money. And yeah. knowing that fans are coming back, like, there, there is revenue that you can count on if you wanted to build a competitive baseball team and uh, for for that matter the Padres went out and did it you know they they made Absolutely. splashy moves all off season and and now they are smack dab in the middle of a of a division race with the Dodgers they'll probably both make the playoffs and both be legitimate contenders to win the NL pennant so um i i think that the Padres are the perfect example that if you really want to, yeah, just go do it. And and the owners could if they want, but yeah. they're all trying to do it is as, as uh, financially unrisky <laughs> as they can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Padres. The, the the Padres started with uh, the one bad White Sox move during this whole rebuild. The the James Shields for Tatis Jr. <laughs> looks so horrible right now. <laughs> it, it, just imagine if he was on the White Sox, <laughs> like, they would right. definitely be like the best team. Probably. I mean, the lineup's already good. When you he probably would have got injured too somehow trying to steal a home run in spring training, but. You know. <laughs> Me and my brother joke sometimes that the trainers on the White Sox aren't that good because they're always got it's like May and there's already guys with hurt hamstrings. And it's like, I know it's the pandemic, but shouldn't these guys have the best training? Like <laughs> stretch a little bit. <laughs> yeah, good but, point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, what's funny is uh, you know, you kind of talked about we're talking about adding more playoff teams that, that has to go with some fans are upset that the purity of baseball is messed with, um, you know, and we got some new rules that are holdovers from the pandemic right now. Uh, you know, some specific ones, you got the seven inning double headers and then the runner on second to start extra innings. 
Uh, personally, I hate the runner on second in extra innings. I think it's the dumbest thing that baseball's ever done, and I kind of hope that they get rid of it. Uh, it. It takes away everything. It's almost like I just, it just doesn't make sense. And I know, like, okay, you should score that run. And I'm not just mad that the White Sox have gone through games this year where they didn't score that run and somehow lost the game, even though they, they could have won. It, it just takes away from baseball. Like you have to be able to hit. And if the game goes 15 innings, oh, well, like you should have tried to score. You should have bunted a guy over. Like, you know, like you're, you should be able to get on base once in five innings. Like, you know, so I, I don't personally like that. Uh, at all the the seven inning double headers i guess i don't mind as much as some people because injuries happen and uh sometimes things could get nuts and you have like you know six double headers in 10 days no one wants to see a team have to throw out their entire bullpen and now their bullpen's injured because uh they had to pitch too many innings so i don't necessarily mind the seven inning double headers but i also understand that nine innings is is a game that everybody knows and you know, at the same time, you know, those extra two innings, anything can happen. So, but, you know, the players do know that it's seven innings, so they can try to do certain things as if it's once you get to the fifth, they can just consider it the seventh and maybe change their strategy. But I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on some of those types of rules? Yeah, I am with you. I can live with a seven inning double header. And, um, you know, and you make a good point as far as the approach, the game can be managed you know, appropriately, because you know what, you know, what the, the, the starting line, what the finishing, what the finish line is going into that double header. So that's fine. I, I agree with you on the, uh, the, the runner on second in extra innings. Um, I, I just, I don't understand logically how it speeds up the game because you're right. Of uh, Theoretically, you put a runner on second with nobody out statistically, you know, you should be able to move that runner to third and get them home, you know, whatever it is, two thirds of the time. But then you go into the bottom of the inning and the home team has the same odds yeah. of moving them over. So like you're not, you're just adding a run for each team that doesn't break a tie, you know, and, yeah. um, um, so th- this came up, uh, the Cubs and Cardinals had the Sunday night game a couple weeks ago. It went into extra innings. Um, I believe it was scoreless after nine and they, they put a runner on second, Javi Baez hit a home run and the Cubs scored two runs obviously. And then the Cardinals came up and, you know, they, they got their runner from second base in on like a, a double and the game ended two to one. But if we didn't put a runner on second base, the Cubs would have won one nothing because there was a home run in the top half of the inning and a double that got and the base runner got stranded in the bottom of the inning. Like, yeah. so why does a two to one game in 10 innings better than <laughs> the one nothing final? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, if you're giving both teams an equal opportunity, then you're not, I don't. I don't really understand how that speeds up the game, which is what I, my understanding is the whole purpose behind it is to just, it's somehow going to stop us from getting more 16 or 17 inning games. But if everybody's performing equally, it doesn't, it it doesn't break that tie. 
Yeah, and that's a good point because that is true. It's like statistically going to be a tie again. You're going to go to the next inning and there's going to be a runner on second again. If anything, it might make the game go longer because <laughs> it'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah, you know, so eventually one team's going to score one more run than the other team. You know, like I, I don't care, if, you know, if that tie gets broken. I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm exhausted by it already. Uh, truthfully, it just, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And yeah, and it just feels silly to hit two run homers on the first pitch of an inning. You know, it, it feels unnatural. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, before we finish up here, I do want to get into your predictions because I'm sure you, you might have some. So, you know, who are your top candidates in baseball right now to, to be, um, you know, in the postseason, as you know, not just to make the postseason, but to then be World Series contenders. And and who do you think, like, if you're going to name, like, like it's hard to just say I this team's going to win. Like, I don't even know how people predict that kind of stuff because, you know, it, there's just so many things that can variables. But you know, who who do you th- maybe like three four teams that you think have a really good shot uh, of of making the World Series and possibly winning? Yeah. Um... Well, starting in the American, I, I like the White Sox. You know, I'm I'm kind of kind of caught up in the moment here. I they're an exciting team. They seem like a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, they're gonna have to deal with whoever comes out of the East. You know, maybe a couple of teams at the at the Red Sox and Yankees uh, kind of continue looking strong. I I find the Blue Jays to be entertaining as well, just with their their crew of young guys, and all of them are young guys from like dudes i enjoyed watching uh their their dads play so um the the blue jays are a lot of fun um but uh, i'm not sure i'd put them in that same group um to me it's kind of chicago boston new york is i I think teams to kind of keep an eye on just haven't seen much al west baseball to to make any any real educated pick out of there um, but then on the NL side, you know, um, the central's pretty wide open, you know, as far as those top three teams are concerned, uh, if the Cubs, Cardinals, or Brewers, you know, get on a particular hot streak, or if any of those teams can just avoid a really, really poor stretch of baseball, any one of those could get in. And like we said before, you know, it's, it's hard to win the world series, but if you're in the playoffs, you got it, you got a chance to do it. So uh, that's kind of an appealing uh, notion as a Cubs fan. Um, But that said, you know, um, in the other divisions, uh, you know, the Padres, I I really, I kind of have the same feeling I do with the White Sox watching the Padres play. Uh, The Dodgers are, are still loaded. So, that's going to be a fun race to watch. And it looks like the Mets, you know, are putting together a, a decent year over in the East. But um, as a fan, you know, I'd love to see the Cubs just put together one last run like we talked about before. And if they don't, uh, again, as a fan, I think I'd really like to see a White Sox-Padres matchup in the World Series. I don't know if it'd be great for national ratings, but uh, as far as just like Young guys playing fun baseball, that would be a, a great seven-game series to, to wrap up the season. Yeah, that, that definitely, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would definitely enjoy that kind of <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> you know, when I when I look at it, uh, you know, I, I have to say, 
the the east looks like a deadly race because you also have the rays doing pretty good recently um it's interesting to see how that's going to shake up but it's hard for me not when you look at the talent that the yankees have and then you look at um like what the red sox have been able to do that uh, it's hard to not see them maybe pulling away later but the race surprised me a lot um you know you after what they lost after their run last year, you wouldn't think that they'd be right back there again. And somehow they are. So, I mean, I'm not going to take anything away from them, but I I would agree with you that I would think that the Yankees or Red Sox coming out of that division will be tough. Um, Obviously I have to go with my white Sox, um, uh, though. They, they do have problems with Cleveland. Uh, The thing is, is that Cleveland has problems with everyone else. So it's hard for me to think, that in the end, you know, with it being 162 games, that the Sox won't pull away later, especially if later, I mean, it's going to be like getting trades when you think about Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez coming back. It's going to be like you traded for some studs, you know? But you so, didn't give anything up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that's pretty cool. So, I, do, I mean, again, I, it's hard for me to think that the Sox don't make the play, the White Sox don't make the playoffs. And if they make the playoffs with their rotation, it's hard for me to think that anybody wants to play them, especially in a short series, you know, that first round series. So, um, you know, I, I have to, I, I would look at White Sox, you know, Yankees um, probably as my top two coming out of the American League um, with uh, the Red Sox and maybe the Rays as dark horses or if the Blue Jays get hot. Like, I feel like whoever comes out of the East is probably going to be a dark horse to make it. Um, the, the, yeah, the West has been kind of weird. Um, I, I've only paid attention to it uh, a little, but Oakland's been streaky. You know, obviously the Angels have been streaky. Uh, not a Houston's been streaky too. Um, they started hotter than I thought they would, but it's hard for me to think that they could sustain anything for the full season without Verlander. But you know, I don't really see anyone there that like would scare me in the postseason at this point. And obviously people can make trades later, but yeah, I mean, I would say probably Sox, Yankees, or anyone else that comes out of the East are the best bets in the American league. And then in the national league, the, the West division there, just because uh, San Francisco has been doing good too. But when you look at San Diego and the Dodgers, it's hard not to see them as being not only in the postseason but doing well in the postseason. And, you know, if, if they end up playing each other in the NLCS, that would be amazing. That would be a really fun series, yeah. you know, how seeds and all that shake out. Um, I, I, you know, if the Cardinals make it or the, or the Cubs make it or the Brewers make it out of those teams, I would say the Cardinals and the Cubs probably have the better chance to maybe make a postseason run only because the Brewers, it's hard for me to think that their offense would be consistent enough in like a series. Um, they they have shown some good pitching and, and they do have hitters, but you know, it, there's just something like, I feel like the, the Cubs still have that kind of mojo in certain situations. And if they are in a playoff series, especially if they're home for some games and they have the fans um, and just the way that they play and, and the way their offense can score, and then, you know, if their, their pitching is doing decent, they're going to have a shot to win. Like, it, it, I can't, you know, I can't say, I know, I know that's to the chagrin of, of some of my family members who are White Sox fans <laughs> on the South side, but I, I just don't see, I, like, if the Cubs make it, I wouldn't be surprised if they made a run, you know. Uh, 
And then, uh, you know, in the East, I don't, no one scares me out of the East at this point. Uh, At this point, it's, you know, who wants to win it more over there? And are they trying to not win the division? So, so I don't, I don't see anyone out of the NL East doing anything. I would say probably Dodgers Padres are my top two. And then maybe anybody who comes out of the central in the NL has a, a dark horse type shot. Um, and, uh, you know, the Dodgers are the defending champs. So, you know, I would say that they're probably the top contender to make the world series out of the NL and, you know, um, I'll stick, you know, I'll be a Homer and say the white Sox. you know, in the AL, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I think that would be an amazing series. White Sox Dodgers. I think it would be great. You know? So, um, I, I think, uh, I think we're in for a fun season regardless. I think it's going to be great. Uh, and it's going to be all, like, uh, you know, I'm going to be getting to some, I'm actually some friends are coming up from Chicago and we're going to uh target field to watch a twins white Sox game in August. Um, and we just got tickets uh, right behind home plate, you know, f- you know, nice. first section, you know, like right there, like we're like 15th row, but it's still to me, I'm like, that's going to be awesome seats, you know? it's going to be fun to be at a game. Like I've been, I've talked about it with other people. Like, uh, yeah, I've covered games, but to go to a professional game and to, to kind of like that, to me, that's going to be like, wow, this pandemic is finally coming to an end. <laughs> like, you know, it, and it, it's going to be a blast just to be in that atmosphere because, uh, th- they lifted by that game. I believe they can have a sellout crowd at target field. So at least, you know, unless something happens in between then and now, but it's, it's going to be fun. I can't wait. <laughs> you know, Can't wait to go to some games and watch some good baseball, you know? Absolutely. There's nothing better in the summertime, just getting out to the ballpark and join a game at any level, you know, the hometown, like we talked about, you know, the local, local stuff, major league baseball, minor league stuff, uh, summer at a ballpark. That's, that's what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, thanks. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate, uh, you know, being able to talk to you and, and, uh, you know, discuss different things, you know, besides just baseball, but just like, you know, you, the newspaper industry and, and sports journalism and just being in journalism or, or anything communications like that, that it's really cool to kind of get that kind of like-minded stuff. And, and I would think that the audience would be interested in, in just hearing what we have to say, because, uh, you know, I mean, people might be interested in like this stuff that their local media has to go through and, and maybe interested in just, uh, you know, the journey that we had to do that is, you know, I know you're going to get mad at me because I accidentally like misspelled your kid's name that was spelled wrong in the roster. But at the same time, maybe understand that it took me, it's hard work to get here and you don't just get here. You don't just do this job or any kind of communications job without having to work, work hard, you know, work your ass off, so to speak, and, and continue to do so. You can't just get the job and then be like, Oh, I made it. I'm cool. Like you got to keep getting better. Right. Like, <laughs> so, I was, so, I mean, it's been fun just being able to talk with you about that stuff. I appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It's been too long since we've caught up. So, you know, if, if it takes a, a podcast recording to get us uh, face-to-face, just chit-chatting a little bit, uh, and I'm all for it. And, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a great uh, conversation. And, yeah, 
been real good reconnecting a little bit and reminiscing about uh, some of the glory days, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we should definitely do this again too, even if it's not for a podcast. You know, <laughs> absolutely, man. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, just want to say thanks to everyone who has been listening and supporting the Sun Dried Tomatoes podcast and YouTube channel. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed and downloaded the podcast, and to those who have subscribed to the YouTube channel itself. This wouldn't be possible with all of your support, and I really do appreciate it. And thanks again to my friend Josh uh, for joining me. I will talk to you all later. Later.